On this episode, we peer into the mind of Jim DeVille. Jim is a staff software engineer at Procore and is a master in the realm of observability. With experience and technical chops that rival only his beard when it comes to quality, this was an experience that yielded many takeaways, as is only natural when you speak to Jim. Enjoy. So what is it that you're doing at Procore? So at this point in time, I'm the tech lead on a team that is focused on observability. Um, and so what that really means is we've been around for about 20 years and we use various vendors. And for most of our life cycle, those vendors have been kind of brought in because somebody used them before or brought in because somebody needed a feature that wasn't already there. And in general, it's just kind of organically sourced, you know? Um, and we've gotten to the point where I think we have five or six. And it gets kind of hard to jump around between them when you're you know, in the middle of an incident or just to try to plan and find out where our growth is going, yep. it becomes hard to, you know, correlate five, six tools to do that. Um, so, you know, last year there started being an effort on the team I was on at the time, um, application infrastructure is what we called that team. Gotcha. And that team was supposed to own kind of like service creation. Um, there was talk about them owning like the idea of a service mesh, like Envoy or Istio in particular, the way that, that developers interact with the service mesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was talk, about them owning this observability space and trying to take these multiple tools and start guiding them towards a more unified purpose, trying to make them work better together or see if replacements exist that would actually improve our ability to to observe ourselves. Um, We had a new VP come in and then she's like, you know, this is such an important area that we actually want to dedicate a team to it. So in February, that team was formed and I was the first person to jump over to that team. And then we hired the rest of them around that. To, no. to jump over willingly, or was it, uh, yeah. you know, you, you no, wanted to, you were... willing. Like, um, we actually had a meeting, you know, there was this discussion that we want to have an observability team. And gotcha. that team would fit more under our former SRE area of responsibility than on our dev side. Um, and so we had a meeting with, with this application infrastructure team and then the other stakeholders on the other side to say, like, where are the lines? What does this team look like? What do each, each member team kind of contribute? And it came clear that, like, we wanted to have our application infrastructure team be more of like a liaison to talk about, to be able to kind of speak for the developers in the company for what we need from an observability tooling. Mm-hmm. And then the decision-making and the direction setting would be on the other, other team. And I was like, this meeting happened, I think on a Friday. And I thought about it for the weekend. And then I came to my manager and I did, well, actually I think right after, if I remember correctly, I just told my manager, I might be interested in this. I'm going to think about it over the weekend. And she said, okay. And then that following week, I just said, yeah, I want to take the, I want to, I'm pretty sure I want to jump on the new team. Um, over, over the weekend, I love it. Quick, quick switch. Yeah. Because sometimes you talk know. to who would be my new manager, new director, actually, and then and just kind of fill out for what he expected from the team and if it fit what I would want to be doing. And mm-hmm. it seemed all like a good lineup. Um, and honestly, I've been very happy since I joined. It's been a really good chance to have really high impact and really get to set direction on something and become an expert on something which has been satisfying. Yeah, that is great. I kind of talking, I had Harry on my last show and we had talked about, I was just mentioning it offline here, but you hit a point where you're doing a lot of the same thing. And we had alluded a little bit to wanting to become a master in one domain. So you kind of start off on Mm -hmm. your career and things are a lot more broad and you're really just mucking about saying, yeah, I can Mm -hmm. fix any project. I can do any project. And then I could definitely see, and for, you know, the listener's context here, Jim has done, you know, he's been through the gamut of software. He was at Microsoft, he was at Malwarebytes, now he's at Procore. Um, so I can definitely understand wanting to niche down into something more specific like that and kind of master it. 
So you had this VP come in and she thought the investment in an observability team was absolutely worth it. Maybe you could elaborate a little bit on, for those who don't know, maybe the value in having high observability, what observability is, what does it enable, uh, things along those lines. Yeah. Um, so the context here is like, you know, we were traditionally a monolith oriented company and similar to what you see if you read Stripe's public public blog, they talk about their journey from um, from my monolith to they're they're moving towards what they call I think my macro services is what, is what they're calling them, them these days. They started mm-hmm. as microservices and they realized that that was just too much of a lift. And they also ran into some of the similar problems that you see a lot of companies run into where they try to adopt microservices that it becomes you just shift the complexity to somewhere else and it doesn't become as effective. But you yeah, still, it's a sleight of hand sort of, and it doesn't actually right. It. But when done right, you still get benefits from micro, from a service oriented architecture by breaking apart domains and getting to have better clarity on if I make this change, I know I have a limited blast radius of who, of who I could affect. <laughs> right. Right. Blast radius is a good way to put it. <laughs> um, the problem though, is that no matter what you do, if you start to move away from a monolith architecture, your potential sources of problems, they magnify exponentially right away because you have more interaction points. You have more chances for something to go wrong. And that's both in terms of releasing a bug and also in terms of a hard drive failure or, you know, network misconfiguration, like all these points for failure just exponentially in- increase. Mm-hmm. And back when you're dealing with like a single server or a auto scaling group, all doing one thing, it's not too bad to be able to basically just say, okay, I have a pretty simple flow path. I'm just going to instrument everything. And that's where you get tools like Nagios and eventually move into things like Datadog. And, um, and these tools work, but they're very geared towards this like monitoring idea, especially like, when you're talking about the older ones like Nagios, that like that's that's monitoring. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and this mindset of when something goes wrong on a server, I can SSH into that server. I can start telling the logs and I can play around and I can find the problem. I can deploy a single um, a single instance of my application that I maybe have modified to mm-hmm. be coded to debug. And I can SSH to that box and you know, I can do this very simple debugging technique. When you start bringing in things like Docker, and especially when you start moving towards like uh, Kubernetes, the idea of I'm going to SSH to this server, and I'm going to send a request to that server, and I'm going to be able to see everything that's going on, and be able to rely on this server staying around while I do all this, mm. it starts to go away. You know, Kubernetes can have scaling events that immediately tear this down mid-request. You can't really control where Kubernetes is going to route something to unless you want to take some, you know, extraordinary steps to force certain requests to go to certain uh, services. Um, and even in a properly running production environment, to protect user privacy, to protect PII, to comply with things like SOX and FedRAMP, you know, all those compliance frameworks that exist out there, you have to actually not allow your, your engineers to SSH to these boxes. Mm-hmm. So you have to be able to view, to figure out what's going on inside of a box from the outside um, more effectively. And that means shifting how you think about monitoring. No longer are you th- thinking about these, what's called known unknowns. You know, I know this can't may go wrong, so I'm going to instrument it so that in the future I can find out the value. I know this question I want to ask. That works great again when you have a, a small number of failure cases. As you move to this distributed world, you lose that ability to really predict what you're going to need to know at the time of a failure. And mm-hmm. um, there's a common phrase in the observability space, uh, one of my favorite people who talks a lot, a lot about it is Charity Majors. 
the, uh, she's the founder and CTO, if I remember correctly, of Honeycomb. Gotcha. And um, she talks about these unknown unknowns. You don't know what you're going to want to ask in the future. And you obviously don't know the value of that, the answer to that question. Yep. And the best way to get to that point is you start instrumenting things in a way that is trying to give more context around what you're doing. So that's where things like structured logging become very important. Um, and then tying those to traces so that any given metric, any given log event can be tied to an operation that performed it. And also because you have so much context, you can start to group things in very interesting ways. You know, you can say, I have this failure. Well, what correlates with this increase in failure? You know, I'm looking at an aggregate chart of my metrics or aggregate chart of my traces. I see an increase in latency. Well, I can look at that latency change and then identify, well, what is in, what is common about the traces that are showing this latency increase? And Honeycomb is kind of a cool tool. I've played around with it a little bit and it does that thing for you automatically. You select this baseline and this error and you compare them and it starts to show you, well, you know, maybe a company ID is different between these traces. Maybe a host ID, maybe a, a, a deployment zone, maybe a code version. And so that gives you this really quick ability to go from, I know something's wrong, whether that's from an alert or traditional alert or just looking through your charts to, okay, it's pointing me towards this commit that went wrong or just this group of servers, something seems wrong. And that helps you then go from detection to, re to identification really fast and be able to start saying, well, now I know this commit did something wrong. I'm just going to dig into the code. Yeah, that it's is tied to a commit. I believe it's a problem with my code as opposed to, well, it's this group of servers. So let me get the operations team involved or let me get my dev at, DevOps hat on. And did I misconfigure something in the network or the infrastructure there? Absolutely. And this is all in the name of, you know, fixing problem, problems more quickly, right? And having that, being able to throw the dart and find exactly where the problem lies, whether that's with the infrastructure or with the code change, like you're saying, availability zones, really interesting stuff. And I actually hadn't considered kind of the, the downside of observability in the case of Kubernetes, where the example you had, where you could have, you know, a, a container image that gets pulled down and changed really quickly. And all of a sudden, you don't have access right. to it anymore. Um, and then also yeah, the, have the flip side of that coin you were talking about where you have all these regulations that you might need to adhere to as well, where it's actually not allowed for people to SSH in to quickly find out what would happen and things along those lines. Very, very interesting. Yeah. And, um, I think one of the biggest places that shows value is like you said, in either preventing or identifying incidents and changing that time. Like there's a lot of research out there about the fact that like, uh, there's a value, a measurement called mean time to resolution, which is if you really take, you know, here's where my incident started, here's where it resolved, average that out across all your incidents, and that's a measure. Yep. It seems useful at first thought, but the problem is incidents and failures are so widely varied and can be affected by things as wide as, you know, which engineer is investigating. Um, maybe something started happening a month ago, but because it's a very rare thing, maybe it happens only in batch jobs and it's unfeasible to run those batch jobs out of band. So you have to wait a month. Well, that's going to blow your, your mean time to resolution. So it makes it a bad measure. Um, I'm a strong believer in the idea that the re a really good measure for us to really identify if we're moving in, in the right direction. It's not perfect, unfortunately, but it helps is this Delta between the mean time of detection of a resolution mm -hmm. or of an incident and the mean time to identifying what's going on. That's something that these tools can really really change and drive and that you get a little bit better um, 
a little better scoping on honestly to avoid these outliers really throwing you off. So not the main time to resolution, but okay. The the alarms are going off. Something is going wrong to identifying what actually is going wrong. And then whatever time it takes to fix past that is kind of uh, uh, obviously important, but the time of the alarms going off to knowing what happened, what's going wrong. That's kind of the, the measure that you're looking at. Yeah. And that's in particular, the, the, like being able to, to tie a measurement to whether or not your tools are helping you is, uh, is that window right there. Um, you know, like you said, from identification to resolution is still massively important mm-hmm. for some companies. There may be an SLA in place that if you take too long to resolve between that identification and resolution point, you're now having contractual obligations to customers that you have to deal with. And that's obviously still a huge factor. It's just your observability tools don't necessarily come into play there as much as your your process for fixing and deploying code becomes a huge portion there. Um, and so that's, like you said, identification and resolution of incidents is very important. Um, I like what Ben Thigelman has said. Uh, he's the CTO and co-founder of Lightstep, another company in this space. And he's made a big point about how observability is not just understanding incidents. That's one important area of it, but it's about understanding change. And it's about trying to get the ability to understand any change, whether that's an intentional change. I deployed code. I changed my infrastructure. Those are intentional or unintentional changes, you know, code failures, incidents are a form of unintentional change. Something breaking is gonna be that too. Um, it also can become useful in terms of trying to better understand growth and planning in the future as well. And that's where I like to focus. When I push forward here at Procore, I try to, to say like, hey, here's where we can really help make a difference in the company. And I know you're a big Ruby, I think a pretty big Rails guy as well. Uh, has a lot of yeah. that gone out the window with this new role in observability? Are you still in that same realm? What does, uh, I guess, the tool stack look like, uh, if you're allowed to speak on it? What is, how has is, uh, what you've been doing or have been used to doing for the past year, a couple of years changed with this new observability role? Um, you know, that's a funny story there personally for that one. Um, so I interviewed at Malwarebytes as a Ruby on Rails developer, got my offer letter as a Ruby on Rails developer, and then early on got asked to work on like my first day as a matter of fact, got asked to work on a go project. I ended up loving it. It was a great team to work with. It was a cool project to bring to, to fruition. It was, it's what became the incident response portion of Malwarebytes' uh, online business to business offerings. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I immediately went to go and spent most of my time at Malwarebytes working on go and then TypeScript um, near the end. I had a similar thing here where I came in expecting to work on Ruby on Rails because we are a big Rails shop. Um, even my first descriptions of the team I'd be working on were very rails based. I was telling my friends back in Florida before I moved, how I'd expected to be working on this team that would, uh, help manage the rails upgrade process and libraries related to that. So that, you know, the engineers could focus on the business opportunities while I was part of the team focusing on helping us improve our core frameworks. Yep. Yep. Um, it turns out I ended up actually also then working on Elixir for my first period of time here. (laughs) So, um, I have done a little bit of rails since being here, but. Honestly, I have not touched Rails as much as I wish I had in about the past five years at this point. Um, and this seems similar. There's a very, it's a very scattered uh, team, to be honest. Um, our core mission, building some of these toolings and the integrations to get our data into these toolings has us looking at technologies like FluentD, FluentBit, um, OpenTelemetry, and Vector. Um if we ever did start to contribute back, OpenTelemetry, for example, is a Go project, so that'd be having writing Go again. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some internal scripting that uh, our team has chosen to write in Go, and then um, down the road, we're expected to write libraries that will help t- 
teams across the company integrate into our ecosystem. And, um, you know, that's, we're somewhat of a polyglot company in that respect. So some of the major languages we do to work in are still Ruby, Java, TypeScript. Yeah. But um, I have worked with some teams with Go and had talked about them about how we would develop a library in that, in that language. Um, there's a lot of us who have, you know, no, nothing formal at this point, but we've talked a lot about like Rust and really wanted to get our hands dirty with Rust and being able to observe that, of course, would be important there too, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd love to dive into Rust a little bit. And, you know, there's the ongoing joke, you know, rewrite it in Rust. That's, you know, like it's tossed around everywhere. But right. the idea too of getting hired for a specific thing at a salaried company where you're not contracting. I think with contracting roles, you have a more defined set of things to do because it's very time sensitive. And it's kind of, you're the hired gun to come in to get the job done. With a salaried role, it's been my experience as well, where pretty much everywhere I've gone, it's, yeah, we, we we're hiring you hand wavy for this kind of language, for this kind of project. And within a month or so, or even right away, maybe they get to see your skill set or maybe what you're better at or worse at. And very quickly, things can change into, okay, we're going to toss you over here. We're going to toss you over here. And I don't think that's a bad thing, um, I at least if you're open to being flexible to, okay, yeah, forget, forget JavaScript, forget TypeScript, whatever you were doing. Here's this, here's this new project that could bring in much more money from the business point of view. It's like, okay, we're, we need you to do what is going to be most valuable given your skill set. So it's, it's totally understandable, but it is funny that I, you're not the first person I've heard say that. And it's certainly my experience too, where you don't, you don't get hired to do necessarily what is posted. I mean, I agree. And I don't mind that at all. First of all, like, you know, Ruby was my first love. Like I, I remember 2006, 2007 timeframe you know, back when Dig was still a good site to find content on, I was, you know, I was really active re reading Dig all the time. And I saw that original 15 minute blog post on Ruby, on Rails, I mean, and I went and did that tutorial and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Yep. And spent a lot of time getting up to speed as a Rails developer. My first few jobs all were very focused on Rails, even getting at Microsoft. Um, you know, they brought me in as an SDET because I had that Ruby experience and I could help them test Iron Ruby from that perspective, somebody who knew Ruby really well. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I had a funny conversation with John Lamb at one point uh, early on. Like, I think I emailed him after uh, hearing him on a podcast or seeing a blog article where he said that his team was tiring. And I emailed him, asked to explain my experience as a Ruby on Rails developer and said, would I be a fit? Should I apply? And he was like, no. And in fact, if Yokohiro Matsumoto himself were to apply, for this position, we probably wouldn't be able to use them because for the dev position on that team, they needed strong C-sharp experience. Gotcha. But as someone testing it, they were happy to hire someone with Ruby experience because that was what they wanted. And I, there were times that my main dev, uh, his name was Tomas, uh, he was a great guy, uh, Tomas Matisek, I believe. And uh, he would come to me and say, hey, I'm trying to understand this piece of Ruby code, can you help me? And we'd work through some Ruby code together and then he'd go take that learning, write a little example for his own little personal tests and then do the c-sharp work to make that work gotcha um, yep so yeah i and ever since then i've been very much a, a huge fan of languages i consider myself a language geek i love being there especially in that environment being on the dlr team and you know my day-to-day -day job was integrating with ruby writing c-sharp reading sim c-sharp working with a team that was also building python and so learning about that and then also one of our pms had built this little lisp on top of the dlr to prove it out and so i got to you know look at that and learn from that it was a blast. Um, even my next job there working on our, our on JavaScript, I was 
working with Windows 8 and Windows 8 runtime at the time. And so got to experience JavaScript and the new Windows runtime and some COM. Mm-hmm. Kept learning there. Um, and even when I did leave Microsoft and was focused on Ruby and Rails on my day job, I still was loved playing around with languages on the side. And so while I have had the experiences you're talking about and I've loved them, I have had a few jobs where they were focused on Ruby and they hired me in Ruby and stayed that way. And I was still happy there too. But even there, I'd find things on the side to always learn new languages. Mm-hmm. And Ruby, was Ruby your first language you had learned or no? That was just kind of you said your first love. Uh, <laughs> technically, QBasic was the first language I ever learned gotcha. back in seventh grade. It's the funny thing for me, Ruby actually was, I would almost say accidentally, the first language that I did learn. And really the impetus for that was I wanted to build a delivery service for my, Python was the first language. Ruby was the first language that I developed a project in. So I give that more meat. I'm at college and I wanted to build a delivery service for things students wanted delivered to their dorm. Whether it was uh, a paper they didn't want to walk across campus to print or a candy bar, whatever it was, uh, you know, I'm in college, I'm thinking about this stuff. And I hadn't even done, I was in like intro to software engineering at that time, just like CS, uh, you know, 100, 101, this was freshman year. And I knew I wanted to build this service, but I had absolutely no idea how. Somehow I stumbled upon Ruby, Ruby on Rails specifically. And I remember similar to, I didn't read the blog post like you did. That was, you know, 30 minutes of wow me with Ruby on Rails. But I think it was a a Udemy tutorial that I purchased for nine bucks. And within an hour and a half, I was, I had a backend set up with the schema and I was using Rake and it all generated it for me. And I felt much more powerful and intelligent than I was. But truly in probably a month's time, I was able to build this really clunky service where people could register you as a user and they could order some delivery of either a paper, like I said, a candy bar, get it sent to their dorm. And I had, you know, fleets of people running around delivering things on campus. Unfortunately, that service got shut down because they wanted um, the, the actual, the lawyers of the school came to me and said, this is to some extent disempowering the average student. We want them to take responsibility to, you know, print their own papers and deliver their own <laughs> And I was like, uh, it, it, just, it was kind of the, the most interesting for a school that supported, you know, entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurship adventures like that. Really interesting for them to be like, we're going to shut this whole thing down. I digress. Ruby on Rails was really cool to learn. And I almost kicked myself a little bit for putting it to the side as time went on. I, I became much more of a JavaScript uh, type of kind of guy. And I'm much more on the server side entirely now for what I do for work. But Ruby yeah. on Rails knocked my socks off. And before I was even a major lover of definitely typed languages, uh, statically typed languages. Um, it was the magic that enabled me to do what I wanted to do in two months. And it was really impressive. Yeah, no, I can relate. I, I remember when Scala came out and the play framework came out and I was really interested in this new language and this new framework. And I went and tried to build something simple in it at one point. And I remember just being frustrated at how like it had a pretty smooth, you know, pretty quick getting started type system and pretty smooth development experience, to be honest, like, especially compared to say like your traditional C sharp or Java or heck C, C plus plus type language. You said Scala? But I remember, yeah, Scala and the play framework early on, but it was still like, I remember being frustrated at how much extra it took to do things like restart the server or generate mm-hmm. things or debug and start and stuff compared to just, you know, things like rails generate this or, Rails new. 
does, does rails still hold that spot for you for let's say you had an idea and you wanted to just bring it to reality really quickly is rails what you would default to for i guess something that's more web focused i guess it would really depend on the project um it would depend on the project uh for more meteor things it is still what i would run to um especially if i'm starting to deal with if i need to do anything medium complexity on the database rails is still gonna be my default for basic things that aren't necessarily touching the database or that have super like based database operations, I've tended more towards Express or Fastify these days. Gotcha. And or I Nest, guess actually. Nest, everyone, everyone that knows me knows Nest is my, my not my first love, but certainly my current love. <laughs> uh, it's something that I don't stop talking about it, but um, maybe while we're there, what do you like about Nest specifically? Are you, you Since you have had all this exposure to the the beautiful and automated CLI things that you know Rails can do for you. What do you like mm-hmm. a lot about Nest? I'm actually a really big fan of how well it t- ties into like to the dependency injection. It gives you a really good solid structure for your code. I used to be a bit of a dynamic language purist, honestly. Mm. And over the past few years, working with Go and TypeScript have really kind of been like, okay, this is a nice middle ground in terms of like giving you this support that a static language can give you without giving you so much boilerplate that you see and that I saw at least back in the day working in C sharp and Java Java itself, you know, especially early days of those languages. Um I should clarify for early days, I mean for me like two thousand three to two thousand eight time period. Yeah. That's when I was exploring and learning a lot of those. Um and so I like Nest's integration with TypeScript. Um mm-hmm. And like I said, the structured approach, like it, it gives me that kind of structure that I enjoyed from Ruby. It gives me kind of that, well, I want to do this. Okay, here's how to do it. Yep. Um, Without getting in the way a little bit, like, you know what I mean? It gives you the, yeah. the, the scaffolding, right? Just, just the bare mm-hmm. bones. It has a way for you to do what you want to get done and is also very extensible. And you can also go down um, a layer deeper, I guess, on the request response cycle, like into Express or whatever yeah. it is. It does have that foundation, lets you go a little bit deeper if you'd like to. And to Harry's point on the last podcast, doesn't doesn't get in the way when you want to do something that's a little bit uh, strange or weird or different. Yeah, it definitely doesn't. Um, doesn't have quite the uh, enthusiastic founder who's set on doing things in one way that uh, Rails has as well. <laughs> if you've been at some places that you know, a lot of people would look at the resume and be like, oh, like quite impressive for sure. Um, Maybe speak on the culture at Microsoft, and then maybe we'll go through the gamut um, up through to where you are now. But at least I know a lot of people would be curious to know how it was at Microsoft. And you were talking about your work on Iron Ruby there. Maybe talk about yeah. the, test, the testing you were doing there and all that. Yeah. So at Microsoft, where I was uh, from 2008 to 2011, I was at Microsoft. Um, it was when we were, Balmer was CEO. Um, and it was an interesting experience, honestly. Iron Ruby at that point in time was one of the few open source projects at Microsoft. And um, it was a constant fight from what I understood to kind of keep that alive. I would hear stories from our other teammates about having to continuously go into meetings to justify why this was a valuable project for the company to maintain. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved it. Like I, my responsibilities, like I said, I was the asset on the team. So I was the tester. Um, but I was building frameworks and tooling for testing. So some of the things I did, for example, Ruby has a project called Ruby spec, which is a executable specification for the Ruby language. 
Um, and at that point in time, you know, Iron Ruby was hot, Jay Ruby was hot, Rubinius was hot, and of course Ruby was was gaining popularity. It was around the 2.0 time frame, uh, 2.019 time frame. And so one of my first jobs was to get Iron Ruby running the the Ruby spec te- test suite, which was pretty straightforward, but it meant like Ruby spec has these ways to basically say, yeah, we know that this particular feature fails for this language, so we don't run it on this language. And so I had to go through all the tests and figure out where we had needed these flags, um, add tests as we found things that weren't quite the same, uh, quite matching um, mm-hmm. behavior. So I had to contribute back to the project, but then I'd make it integrate with us. And then I used a similar, I actually used the same test running framework to build a set of tests that allowed me to test C-sharp interop. So I could, I actually took full advantage of Ruby's flexibility. Um, I had a little function called CSC for, for C-sharp compiler. And CSC took a here doc, and then you embedded C-sharp code in there. And you could run a script over your test suite that would pull out all of that code, compile it, like rewrite it into normal C-sharp files, compile it, and drop the assembly in the known location. And then you ran your test suite on top of that after that, and it would run the tests against this assembly you had created. So it allowed me to have C-sharp right next to Ruby so that my test code was next to my fixtures, if you will. Yeah, hats off. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was crazy to be like, hey, okay, let's start by just like basically everything in Ruby and then yeah. just re-implementing, like I just re-enabled things like I made it yield, I made describe yield, and that was, and I made CSC gather up this link, this code. That was basically all this little tool did. Um, so those were my testing responsibilities. And then I also was the person at that time I owned, um, when we migrated from SVN to GitHub, I was the, one of the major main people doing that. I worked with the team to say, let's do this. Let's here's how we can do it and mm-hmm. performed it. And then when we had contributions coming in, uh, it was a slow stream, but whenever we did have them come in, I was the person who would look over the contribution, make sure it didn't touch portions of the code that we weren't allowed to take contributions on. And then also to our process there was, we were part of the internal Microsoft TFS at the time. Um, like that was our true source of truth, source control repository. Mm-hmm. And then we had a public GitHub that mirrored that. And this was before TFS actually could synchronize natively with GitHub, with Git, I mean. And so I would go in and pull the contribution into TFS, make sure it passed all of our test suite, and then synchronize back outwards to keep things in sync. Um, but it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of community interaction. I had a great team. I loved it. When I got to the JavaScript team, it was more of the for me, the, the negative aspects of Microsoft that people would share stories of at that point in time, very bureaucratic, very cutthroat, um, very much, I got mine, but you got to get your own type mm-hmm. attitude. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was that was 2008, 2008 timeframe? Yeah, um, 2010 is when I would have been joining the JavaScript team. Okay, okay. And it wasn't a great fit for me. Um, I'm not a huge fan of kind of that cutthroat atmosphere, honestly. I prefer collaborative environments. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't as much of that at that point in time. Um, and I wasn't personally prepared to work in that environment. So I didn't do the best in terms of managing my own expectations, managing my manager's expectations. Um, it just wasn't really a good fit. What have you noticed on the productivity of teams that do have that more cutthroat mentality, where it is, I get mine, you get yours, versus the more collaborative uh, environment. Um, I would say I haven't been on enough teams yet to really discern that and have been lucky enough, I'd say, to be on a collaborative team for sure. 
uh, everywhere that I've gone. Yeah. I feel like collaborative teams seem to work better. I feel like they get more done. I feel like they have generally higher morale. Um, I definitely know I prefer them. Yeah. 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 I have heard some horror stories of people trying to get pull requests through that simply fail to get through because of egos get in the way, not just like the code could have been great, but the ego kind of crushes getting, getting the, the work across the line. And that to yeah. me is like a nightmare just thinking about something like that. And, you know, we have interns coming on with us right now on, on my team and you see how brutal it could be for sure. And you see, you know, they come on and they're deer in headlights. First of all, they're, you know, sophomores, juniors, seniors in college and, Really, they, they just want to be productive or help out in some way, they, or they're just there mm-hmm. for the, the summer internship because their school or their parents or they themselves told themselves to do it. Um, but I have been able to see very nicely uh, a decent harmony between maintaining the quality for sure without pestering too much or um, just delivering in the right way. There's right, there's right and wrong ways to handle people to get the best out of them. And I mm-hmm. don't think the... Um, you know, berating people or using your ego to, you know, reject a pull request just for no reason really is uh, the way to go for that. So, yeah, I, I definitely don't either. Um, definitely not. I feel like, it, you know, especially if you're talking about bringing on younger engineers and being just a mature, more mature engineer, I'm more of a fan of like working together and helping to mentor and, um, you know, something that the concept I had been exposed to before, but the name I've got exposed to at Procore, um, servant leadership. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, yeah, I am a leader on the team, but my job is not to like boss around and push around and direct. It's a, to make sure that my team has everything it needs to be able to move forward. Yep. My manager acts in the same way. My director acts in the same way. My VP acts in the same way. Um, yeah. I feel like that's a lot more effective. Personally, yes. I feel like that's more a lot more effective for almost every engineer I've ever met. And so I feel like it's generally better for this field, probably more fields as well. Um, but yeah, and I, you know, if, if you're a company that does have uh, plenty of money, handling the developer churn is okay. You know, if you're in one of those kind of toxic environments, you can pivot sure. by having the big name and the big bank account. So you can always hire people on and bring them on. But I'd say it would definitely go further than that in terms of just the, the culture. Definitely. I think more now than ever, people are looking at like the glass door reviews and things like that and are not willing to settle for anything less than a very nice treatment. Maybe not very nice, but at least a, a civil treatment amongst engineers and, you know, egos not getting in the way. I think people are very aware of that and, don't actually settle for anything that would be hyper competitive unless they do want to check on the resume. But I do think teams are also doing better at being much more uh, welcoming to the new devs that come on and incorporating them into the teams. Yeah, I think so as well. Um, I feel like it's a general friend in the industry. I know it's not perfect. I have still heard horror stories as recently, but you know, for the most part, I feel like that is where people do tend to gravitate towards and, especially as people gain experience, um, A, know what they like and what they feel they deserve and B, as much as it sucks to have to say this, they have the clout to be able to ask for that because they have a resume that gets them more opportunities, to be honest. Yep, absolutely. Most of the cases I've heard of people struggling with that kind of being respected, um, that kind of atmosphere. 
uh, tend to come from the people I know who are earlier in their career. Earlier on, yeah. So progressing through your career, you went from there to well, more malware bytes next, or that was at least the the next, uh, the next poster or you know, yeah, call home about it type of uh, title. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, so technically, I from Microsoft, I went and worked for a company called Urban Influence in Capitol Hill. There was a small design shop um, where we had multiple clients that I would had a handful that I would help do software development work for. From there, I went to um, Rooster Park, um, which was another uh, design uh, consulting agency. Uh, Rooster Park, I'd say, was kind of that defining moment for me in terms of it was a place where I had a manager who understood what it meant to be a good manager of engineers and to give them that autonomy, but also that respect and help make sure that they were happy and realize that it wasn't just about like perks, but also about like things like finding them good challenges and making sure they were respected. Mm -hmm. um, and I loved it there. Uh, but after moving to Florida, you know, that was a Seattle based company. And so I did start working for uh, SEO Moz, now, now known as Moz Inc. Um, again, doing some Ruby on Rails, did a little bit of Node there as well. In that one, some people on the podcast might know of. If they're in the SEO space, they probably do know of it. Mm -hmm. But Malwarebytes is, I think, the one that, whether you're in that security space or not, you've probably heard of. Yeah. Yeah, even as a consumer, maybe I, I knew about them before I was really even a, a serious dev. So that's that's the reason that bias came to my mind. And no, that's a fair one. These are all teams of different sizes. Uh, anything mm -hmm. you prefer? I mean, to be where you are now, where you have an entire team dedicated to observability. Uh, I've worked at mostly small shops. So for me, thinking about having the funding or having an entire team dedicated to something like this is like, wow, that's that's a moonshot. Like, we'll, we'll think about yeah. it next year, right? Uh, <laughs> which one do you? prefer or maybe talk on the pros and cons of both that you've experienced yeah, yeah i think pros and cons is probably a better way to look at that like i've enjoyed working for small teams i've learned a lot working for small teams but it can definitely be frustrating to kind of you know see holes and nobody at the company has the time to take care of it and mm -hmm. you don't have time to take care of it so it just has to kind of languish and that can be frustrating microsoft was a lot of fun it was frustrating in the JavaScript team at times, but even there it was still fun overall. And it was great to be part of such a big company. But at the same time, I have found since then that I really like working at companies where I can kind of mentally picture the whole company in my head. And companies like SEO Moz, like Malwarebytes, like Procore fit that size where like they're growing, they do a lot. There's a lot of opportunity, especially at companies like that, a lot that you can learn and jump around to. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still small enough that I, I, I know you know, 90% of what different teams at Procore are, are actually pursuing. I can get these communications from our um, executive leadership team about the company's priorities. And I know what they're talking about. And that's great. Whereas, you know, at Microsoft, sometimes you'd hear about some initiative and you'd be like, whoa, I didn't even know that Microsoft did that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I remember early, earlier on in my career, like the second job that I had, it was the jack of all trades kind of hat where you came in and after delivering a certain project, let's say it was a backend TypeScript server, whatever it was, you could come in the next week on that Monday and be like, okay, we have an iOS project that's coming up, three, two, one, get after it, uh, yeah. which I didn't mind. Early on, I was ready sure. to learn about everything and everything and on any, any given platform, any language, just because I did want to have exposure to all of, all of the things, all the different possible yeah. you know, avenues I could eventually niche down into or master if I had sufficient interest in it. Mm -hmm. And that's why I valued it um, s slowly over time. 
it became too much breath and not enough depth for me. Um, yeah. and so was still happy to adhere to all the, the goals of the company at that time. And luckily it did, it did transition for me very nicely into being a little bit more um, linear in one direction for me, that was server-side development at large. Mm-hmm. But yeah. um, the one thing that I, I did want to avoid was becoming a rote robot that was just pumping out like front ends all the time in the same language, doing similar projects. And I think that can happen where you do end up having a role where it is just very repetitive and you're using all the same tooling and all the same, not, not that it's a bad thing. If you, if you have plenty of things you love to do outside of work and work is work for you mm-hmm. and you know, you're just there to get the job oh, yeah. done, rock on. I get it. That's great. Yeah. Like I know there are people I'm, I know I'm not one of these, but I know there are people who are extremely happy pumping out WordPress sites, WordPress marketing style sites. Mm-hmm. And it serves a great role. There's a lot of companies that that's all they need. And so good on them for finding that niche. Right. I just yeah. know I like the challenge. So that's not, I like the challenge of going deeper than that. And that's just not my, my area. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, the, the, it sounds like the project you were doing with I and Ruby. It definitely doesn't sound like you'd be wanting to pump out uh, the WordPress sites <laughs> like that going down to that level. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that, that differentiation of like early on versus later in your career of like wanting to learn everything versus not, um, for me, I think I had a similar thing as well. Like early on, yeah, I wanted to try everything. I wanted to learn everything. I wanted to know everything and quickly realized, yeah, you can't. And the first conscious recognition of that, I think for me was when I was at Rooster Park, was working with a company that had some security holes in the way they were doing their code. Mm. Um, and was trying to prove it. You know, I was a contractor basically for them. So I was trying to prove it to the engineers to try to get them to take ownership and realize what they, that they needed to change direction. Mm-hmm. And I was having some trouble. And I went and ran this tool called SQL map. Didn't know much about it when I started running it. Went and found it. It's a SQL injection attack vector. It's kind of like the Metasploit toolkit where it's, you know, for white hat hackers, a way to test a SQL database that you have access to. Okay. Okay. Um, but so I pointed it at my local development server and let it run. And it's sitting there spitting out every attack that it's trying against the database. And some of them, you know, they're straightforward. The ones I know, SQL injection, sure, um, attempts at escalation of privileges, that kind of thing. But then it's throwing out all these things like, like union-based attacks and this-based attacks, collation-based attacks. And I'm just like, I didn't even know these were attack vectors. Yep. And yep. it was kind of this just realization, like, I know a little bit about security. I feel like I know enough to to do my day-to-day job and I know enough to know when I need to go talk to somebody who is a security expert to get advice. But that was one of the times where I was like realizing this entire world, like this was just SQL attacks and it yep. was this entire yep. world that I didn't know. And you start to expand that beyond SQL and there's you know, that entire scope. And it was just like this, I could go down that path if I really wanted to, but I'm happy here. And so I'm going to just let that lie. Yeah, and, and conscious choice of I'm not going to go pursue understanding everything I'm seeing here, and that's trying to hit every every mole that pops up and trying to learn everything. Like you said, you can you can have a given day, like you were just explaining, where you do have you know your brain explodes when you find out that there is so much more to it, and mm-hmm. that certainly time is finite, and you're not going to have the time, or you'd have to at least choose, uh, especially if you're early on your career, you have the, I guess, ability or. Uh, you know, you're able to choose what you want to spend your time on more so, but you do come across things like that. And for me, I, I always put my nose up at security because I was always 
in the startup mentality with whatever, whatever mm-hmm. I was doing that changed when I got into my professional career, um, just cause yeah. you have to focus on it. But, you know, luckily if you're, if you're fortunate enough, you have a team that can handle that stuff because it is certainly daunting. I have a couple yeah. of friends that work in the AppSec industry, some of them dev, some of them on the sales or marketing side. And even they will come to me and just, you know, ask me questions on any given day. And I'll have no idea what they're talking about security wise. I'm like, yeah, I'm very glad that I stay in my own little circle of competence when it comes to being a developer. And then I can offload some of that stuff to people who know what they're doing. Cause you do, you are painfully made aware of how naive or ignorant you are in certain realms and just deciding to stay away from them and not sink all your time into them can be tricky. Yeah, it definitely can. Um, and that's one of those things that's actually been really interesting about this journey towards observability, to be honest, as well. Is one thing I find fascinating if you look at it is like in terms of full company size, Malwarebytes at Procore and a company I haven't worked for, but I've heard a lot about GitHub or actually before Microsoft's acquisition, they're all around 1,500 to 2,000 people. But one of the differences is, is what kind of product offerings they have and what kind of level of support they have. You know, Malwarebytes has this diversified product range and they have been a very for a long time, they were very much a software shipping company. You know, they shipped the software, the Malwarebytes product. They had boxes that they sent to retail stores. Right. That was their process. And this web team I was on was kind of a new initiative for them. Mm. So even though they were a 1,500 to 2,000 person company when I was there, our web team was only 30 to 50 people. Yep. Then you go to Malwarebytes, so, and then you go to Procore, and you're looking at, another 1,500 to 2,000 person company. Um, we, we work with construction companies. We are very hands-on with them. And we, you know, we try to make sure that, our, that their processes that they have in place can mesh with what our systems. And so we work well with, work with them to implement a kind of direction that that goes in. Um, so we're a little more sales heavy than many companies. And so our engineering team is only 300 people. But already that's a very big difference from 300 people focused on web technologies versus 30. Yep. And then from what I've heard at, um, from employees and friends I know at GitHub, you have another company that size, very low touch sales process. Mm-hmm. So most of their company is, um, is based on engineers supporting the web product. And what I find fascinating is you look at like you know, Malwarebytes, I would work closely with the SREs. We talk about using Datadog, we talk about AWS, but we only had 30 to 50 people. So we had a limited amount of what we could really do and understand. We talked about how we knew that we need to do better at tracing, but we were all just, if we wanted to do that, it was one of us just saying, hey, let's give this a try. Maybe come to Procore and we had a dedicated SRE org since I started. And then now we're taking a step of like, well, let's try out these things and focus this direction. And now we have a whole team dedicated to, well, let's try this. And if we find good techniques, bringing that to the whole company as a whole, not just some random engineer, but someone who's dedicated to that. Um, and then you go to somewhere like GitHub and I don't know about their observability story, sort of what they've shared on their blog. You know, I know they're instrument with open telemetry right now, for example, from recent posts, but what's fascinating is to think about how like they have entire teams dedicated to being part of the Rails core team. And that's something they can do at that scale. And I think it's fascinating to look at like the difference between different companies at the same size based on that external factor of like sales process or totally. support requirements. Yeah. Or even diversity. One thing that I think you certainly are experiencing as someone who's definitely a very senior engineer. As you begin to master down and get better and better at your craft, um, how do you frame 
success beyond being a senior engineer now that you've been in in in, in the game for quite some time and have accomplished plenty of things uh, what do you view as success because i think i could see myself and i've heard it from other people who are deeper on in their careers who reach a point where the engineering problems are the engineering problems and they do have a life outside of work. So taking on new larger challenges that would be very time intensive or would require a lot of time investment um, aren't necessarily feasible to some extent. Um, what do you what do you see as uh, success beyond being um, a senior engineer? That's a great question. It's something I've been actually grappling a lot with lately. Um, to give a little context for my personal side of that is, you know, I've been a, at Procore, we have a level beyond senior called staff and beyond that, it's principal. And I'm a staff engineer here. And one of the expectations of staff and engineers is they are kind of that team leader um, on the technical aspect. And I've been in that position before as a tech lead on a team. Um, but then I came here, I was on a bit of an understaffed team. And so, yes, I was to the team leader, but when they're two people, there's not much that that really means. Yeah. You still work together for everything. You can make all the decisions together. Mm -hmm. You can go both go to planning meetings together. It's all fine. Um, and then as I've stepped into this team and we've hired and I've become a kind of a team leader for multiple people, one of the biggest things I've noticed is this changing definition of success for yourself from, you know, before it meant getting this task done, getting this feature done, driving this initiative forward mm -hmm. by myself that's no longer success for me. Success for me actually is now transferring this idea to my team so that they get it done. They drive this initiative forward. They go out there and communicate with the, with the cross-functional team. And in the meantime, my job becomes, while my team is focused on feature X right now, I'm figuring out what feature Y is going to require in order to make sure that feature Y is unblocked when, that, when we get to that point. I'm figuring out who feature Y depends on so that I know the contacts we need to go communicate with. Maybe I'm communicating with some of them already. Maybe I'm just preparing it so that when the team's ready to work on feature Y, I can just say, you need to go talk to this team to coordinate this portion of the work. And what um, is, what is your time split look like now? Um, is it mostly that uh, forward focus looking and coordinating and managerial or even helping others in the team? Um, and how much of it is execution at the code level or at the project level? Is it mostly 50-50? What's the split on that? Um, I think it's 60 to 70-30. Um, most of my time these days is spent on kind of the strategic side and the, I don't have to do the people manager side of things. Mm -hmm. um, Procore has a pretty good split there of like, we have a manager on the team. His job is to do the large, team to team negotiations, um, priority setting and all that, like that happens on the manager side. Um, and then I'm kept in the loop on those so that I can speak to, yes, this other team is asking for this, but we need to do this right now. And I can help set that direction. Okay. Okay. Um, I have a little bit of resourcing control. Like I do sometimes say, Hey, so-and-so I need you to go work on this. But most of the time it's kind of a collaboration with my manager to say, we need to get this done. I think this person's the right person for it. And we choose that resourcing together. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, 60 to 70% of my time right now is focused on the long-term vision of the team and keeping whatever comes next unblocked and making sure they stay unblocked on what they're currently working on. And the rest of my time is um, 
I, uh, some of it's still getting hit down and dirty on my own code. Um, a lot of times, you know, Procore is very collaborative. So a lot of times that right now, the coding side of it is hopping in with one of my, my coworkers and actually pairing with them on some feature work or configuration change. So in a world where there's all these shiny new editors, and I know you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> what has kept you as a Vim guy for all this time? Do you stray from that path ever? Is it just like riding a bike at this point? Um, I came oh, to the game. Interesting one. I came to the game when uh, VS Code was pretty much introduced, or before that, I was using Sublime, but. Um, I'm in a world now where I, I rely heavily on these GUI editors and all of that. Uh, what is the allure? The, the Why do you love them? <laughs> you know, there's a double answer to that. And one of them is maybe going to be disappointing to those of, those of you who know me as a FIM user. Um, <laughs> first of all, I still do love them. Let's just get that out of the way. I still do love it. I find it to be really efficient. I love the way it makes me think like I don't think in terms of just character and code as much as sometimes when I'm doing heavy editing it's like this um in Vim parlance I think of text objects a lot I think of I need to do this to this text object and that just translates naturally to you know I need to change what the need quotes well ba ba quote I need to delete a line just dd like I think that way and that makes me more efficient I've noticed I also love how flexible it is and yes, VS Code, Sublime, heck, going back to TextMate, they are very customizable editors. But Vim and Emacs kind of bump it up a little bit higher than either than they do, giving you access to so much of the editor in just basic extension code. That said, um, as I've become more of a team leader, I've stepped more and more back into VS Code because that's what my team uses. Mm. I still have VS Vim installed as my, and so I still use those editor extensions there. Yeah, but I've yep. found that it's beneficial to be able to do things like take advantage of VS Code's live share feature, or even I have a teammate who's struggling with a problem. I can dig in with them because I use that editor now enough day to day to help them. Or a new teammate comes in, and I can recommend instead of just generic, "Oh, this language server is great," or "I have these kinds of plugins in Vim. You should find them for VS Code." I can actually say these extensions are actually working really well for me in this area. That is an extremely interesting point there. So you're, you're almost being corralled into the world of, of the newer, shinier editors because of the wide adoption from the masses. And it's just easier to help someone out or because of these features like the, the screen sharing that's part of it or you know, you know, code with me is in IntelliJ, right? Where you can kind of share your screen and jump on a, yeah. a live server and edit with each other side by side. I wouldn't go as far as saying I'm corralled into it. I think it's a very conscious choice to do this. Like, <laughs> it was a very conscious choice to say, I'm going to do this instead of, you know, kind of continuing to go my own way. Um, but yes, the popularity of them has been an impact on that choice. Yeah. Well, you're a rare breed and I respect that. I always, I always, uh, I don't want to say fantasize, but there is some glory to, looking at a mouse and just saying, I don't need you. I can do everything <laughs> with this keyboard. I don't, I don't need it at all. Yeah, I do get that. And, um, you know, I switched back to Mac recently as well for, for similar reasons. And also for the reasons of I did have, you know, it's a rare occurrence, but I did have enough occurrences of being knocked out for hours to day days because of some Linux 
upgrade or accidental mistake Oof. I'd made. Yeah. That it makes more sense for me to be back on Mac. And that's one thing I miss is I had a really great keyboard driven workflow for everything, you know, Xmonad with XFCE as my main operating system and windowing environment meant that everything was keyboard driven. I loved it. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to get back to that on Mac. Um, I have Hammersmith installed. I've been waiting to really configure it to try to recreate that kind of same feeling. I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> well, I have my fingers crossed for you. And have you had any troubles with the, the slow load times with Docker on Mac and dealing with some of those pains? I haven't personally ran into that yet, honestly. Um, I've been able to get away with things that don't either don't need that same level of file system sharing or take advantage of some of the newer features to minimize that impact. To sidestep, yeah. Yeah, I, I, we run a Honestly. relatively complicated process at, at my job. And I go to spin up the project, you know, run, run project command. Um, and within 20 seconds, my machine starts humming. The fan kicks on. You can hear it struggling. It takes quite a long time. And we're, we're looking at ways to side, not sidestep it, but um, improve that. Um, yeah. Even just for local development, it's okay if you can <laughs> ship it in the containerized, but just for a local development, just turn that off just for the time being. <laughs> but yeah, it is, no, I get that. it is certainly uh, the kind of thing where by 2 PM on any given workday, my machine is hotter, hotter than hot. Yeah, I definitely get that. Um, on the team I was on previously, we had a lot of containers that we needed to run for our services and it'd be like that. Um, these days, most of the stuff I run is actually Kubernetes based. My local Kubernetes cluster is too overwhelmed, but, when it does get that way, then I luckily do have some decent access to some dev clusters to be able to offload that. It's not as convenient for offline, but you know, yep. these days I haven't been able to be as offline as much anyway because of meetings and needing to stay in connection with my team. Is there anything in software that still really excites you? I know you were just talking earlier about being excited to kind of go deep into observability and really master that side of it. What about the future of software really excites you? I'm still a language geek at heart. And so there's some stuff that's come out in some of the newer, more popular languages. And in particular, I'm thinking of like TypeScript, Go, and Rust. That still really excites me. Uh, The application of some more functional-oriented principles into those languages. uh, Mm -hmm. The more flexible and modern looks at at the way they approach types. you know, like one of my favorite features, I think, in both Go and TypeScript is the use of structural typing over nominal typing, where, mm-hmm. yes, you have named types all over the place, but, you know, I think it's brilliant that in Go, you do small interfaces everywhere, and if you have a struct that matches that interface, you don't have to do something to say, this struct implements that interface. It's just the presence of the matching signatures that allows you to, uh, to interoperate with something that accepts those, those interfaces. It allows for a very large level of... Uh, interoperability and flexibility. Yeah. Relying on the same way. You're just relying. I, I like that a lot about it too. And just relying on the, the structure to be the same as long, as long as it has these couple properties or whatever, you can use the, the, the types in a way that is extremely flexible. And I've, I've really gotten to love that. And Robert Menke was the one who opened my eyes to that a little bit, showing me the pros and cons with a language that doesn't do that. Um, yeah. and it really, I was like, that. it almost seemed like it was, should be a given. And I get the yeah. reasons why it might not be, 
but it right. seemed just very intuitive. Like, that. of course, that's how type should work, right? Yeah, no, I love that. Um, I also love TypeScript in particular, how flexible and expressive its type system is. I mean, there are still times I'll reach for things like record and just an any and unknown to when I, you know, when I need to get something done a little faster, but when I've really pushed this come to shove, I've been able to express almost everything I've wanted to do in a type system in a, not always perfectly intuitive at first way, but in a way that once you do it, it's like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yep. And for me, the big, one of the bigger things is opting into it and incrementally adding it mm -hmm. to an existing project. Like almost yeah, we have I, a fair amount of I projects that. that are still in JavaScript and being able to switch the file to .ts from .js and for any given new feature you're going to do, say, okay, as part of this, I'm going to add to the scope of the project, like just rewrite it in TypeScript, whether it's this uh, chunk of files and even in the TS config, the way you can kind of very fine grained choose what should be type checked. So your editor is not yelling at you about everything. That has yeah. been incredible. The, the incremental opt-in or the ability to use, use as much of it as you need has been incredible. Yeah, I first read about gradual typing when I was at Microsoft. Um, and it enthralled me right away, just this idea of being able to slowly opt in. Uh, because one of the things I realized early on at Microsoft, like like I said, I was very much a dynamic language purist, but I saw the value in static types, especially at cross-team boundaries, uh, cross-company boundaries, like that, that API layer where you actually are interoperating with somebody who is outside of your team that you can't just turn to and say, hey, what's going on here? Yep. Having static types is really beneficial there, in my opinion. But at the time, I also really loved the flexibility of not having to do them inside. And so gradual typing was like, oh, that would allow you to do that. These days, especially in languages like Go and TypeScript, I love having types throughout the system. I think they're, you know, with how flexible and expressive they are. But I still love the fact that when I want to, I can back that out if I need to, or like you say, coming to a project that isn't natively TypeScript, I can easily interoperate mm -hmm. or just gradually add something. For anyone who's curious, when did you get into software? When did software enter the picture for you? Had you been doing it since you were a kid? Obviously, you're at a, I would reckon, a very successful point in the software industry. Um, not saying that everyone has to follow this path to be successful, but when did you get going in software? So my first real experience to software development was around sixth or seventh grade playing around with QBasic. My first real exposure to computers was a few years before that. Um, I was Windows three one Windows three one timeframe still. My mom had to do a lot of WordPress processing, and so she had access to computers at work, and mm. um, sometimes had to bring them home. And every now and then, I remember getting to play with them. But that was back in the days that, like, to play computer games, you had to enter the disk and then reboot. Yep, and not and stay in DOS. Um, and then. Yeah, I had that interesting period of time going into college. I started doing some computer programming and then didn't finish and kind of thought that I was too far behind to get into software, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, isn't and that funny? I think, later. It is, I think yeah. anyone who starts at that <laughs> point is like, oh, all these kids who started when they were five years old, I'm just so far behind at this point. And yeah. the beauty of, I'd say, our world, I mean, you can go to a boot camp for three months and be effective enough to provide value to a company, which is hilariously interesting. I think that it is very daunting for many people who look at code or could even just, I remember my, my brother or sister would walk by 
my screen when I'd be in high school, like doing early Python, like nothing. I was doing the most trivial of things. They just see the different colors and it just seems so daunting. But yeah. to the point, it's a three month boot camp. Not that that will give you everything you need to be successful, but it's a starting point. And the fact that you could do yeah. something like that and then actually contribute to a operating business in the world does in some sense debunk, oh, I started in college, like I'm already behind the curve. And certainly there's lost time there, but sure, at the same time. There is, and you definitely need to have the right company to support that. And I, I'm glad to see more companies that are that way, but I know that that's not everyone. Uh, but yeah, it's... So far cry, I think for for me, when I got started, I did, definitely didn't have access to, to Udemy, to the courses on that you can find now on, on GitHub or YouTube or anything like that. Like it was. Right. For me, like I said, it was fine things. Ruby on Rails course for 10 bucks. And all of a sudden yeah. I'm off and away and I have a project that has started making me money in two months. It's with yeah. that. That was surreal, to be honest. Uh, so was getting <laughs> almost shunned or kicked off campus for operating a business that was helping students. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's really funny. <laughs> Imagine that. So I know you've spent a fair amount of time playing around with Kafka and actually delivering real life projects with it. Um, could you elaborate on uh, why it's useful, uh, what problems it helped you solve, um, and how it was to work with? Yeah. Uh, so our team was using it to transfer data between um, basically our main database when it would we would make changes in there. We would trigger some process that would eventually drop a message into Kafka and then eventually get it over to a different service that would take that message, process it, transform it from a database level change to like a API level change. So what our goal was is that, you know, an individual database change would happen here, but we wanted to tell the users that this API resource had changed. And we then, once we made this transformation, we could fire off the webhooks or WebSocket notifications to allow that notification go out. The biggest reasons that we switched to using Kafka, one is previously that was a that was done by like an HTTP post across between these two services, which was fine. But if the second service went down, we were potentially losing data. And Kafka gives you that buffer so that if either side really goes down, you don't necessarily lose any data. Um, it's a very fault tolerant. Is, also very yeah, quick. It's extremely fault tolerant. It's very fast and very uh, high throughput as well. And that was the other factor. Like, you know, we were talking about, you know, ProCard as a whole, we're a decently large company. We have a lot of changes going through. If we were to do this using something like RabbitMQ or SQS, it would require a lot of resources. With SQS, it would become very expensive very fast. You know, SQS is great and it's overall cheap, but when you start getting to a certain point, it actually becomes really expensive compared to something like Kinesis or Kafka. Yeah, that... I actually wanted to talk about that a little bit too. In in a world where we're now coordinating and orchestrating all these different services on Azure or AWS, um, obviously it's cost, but that exact example where cost became prohibitively expensive and you decided to roll your own solution. uh, How often, I know you're in the higher level of planning out projects now, do you consider rolling your own versus forget it, Amazon's got it solved, Azure's got a solution for it, let's just roll with it? Um, I very much prefer to try to let Amazon run with it. Even with we went to Kafka, um, you know, they're not the person making these decisions, but, and I don't really want to share too many internal details, but personally, my personal approach would be I'd turn to manage Kafka over trying to restand on my own cluster. Um, same with things like Elasticsearch, 
and Redis, you know, Redis, I've even been with teams that have run it before. It's not terribly hard to run at scale. Um, the worst becomes when you're trying to run it in a sentry mode and you have to manage the cluster. But it's still even easier to just use the managed services that Amazon provides. And um, it's an area of Amazon I feel like doesn't get as much as attention. Like they're managed versions of these existing services as opposed to their own internal hand-rolled things like SQS. Um, I think there are really valuable solutions that still give you that benefit. You know, yes, you pay for an AWS, but that thing you're paying for is to try to offset your own operations cost. Mm -hmm. And I think you still get that same benefit if you're turning to something like Amazon MQ, which is basically just managed RabbitMQ or Amazon's managed Kafka services. Yep. Yeah, and um, I was I was given a little bit of a, a tour through AWS Amplify the other day, which I'm mm -hmm. not sure if you're familiar, but gives you a really, really quick streamlined way to get a brand new application could be like a greenfield project, the front end set up, the back end set up, the schema for the database, all in a GUI if you want to. There's also a CLI for it. Um, actually, Brian Johnson, the first guest on this show, was the one who was spilling me through it. And it was remarkable how quickly you could get a new project up and running and more importantly, hosted with staging infrastructure, prod infrastructure. That was probably the biggest value add for me because obviously you could mm -hmm. have a script that you run locally that spins up a, you know, a React front end with a Nest backend, and you could have you know, a CLI that also allows you to set up the schema. But it was genuinely impressive how quickly he was able to have all of that with operating infrastructure running with very minimal costs until you reached a threshold of, I think it was like a million requests per month, something like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Makes sense. So the setup with the hosted infrastructure with, was really the, the cool part about Amplify. Yeah, no, anyway, I, I definitely agree. I think things like that and even the Elastic Beanstalk they have, like they're really great ways to get started. Mm -hmm. um, and then these other services are ways to kind of move on from that and you need to. I definitely like to the point of the original question, I try very hard to avoid rolling my own when I can because I've got enough other things to take care of. If I can <laughs> manage that and it fits within cost budgets for what I'm told I can do as a team or what I personally want to do for my own personal projects, mm -hmm. I'm happy to I'd rather offset that cost that way. And like we're talking about earlier, there does there is that point that you hit where you have to decide, should I go down this hole of spending the time to do this? Is it worth it? What's the opportunity cost on it? And oftentimes Amazon Amazon's right there in your back pocket taking your wallet saying, we'll take care of it for you. Anyways, to go on a more fun note here, if you could be the god of software for a day, I'll I'll give you a week. <laughs> what would you snap your fingers and make disappear? A problem in the software world that either has popped up recurrently for you or is something that has been a thorn in your side, um, could be in DevOps land, could be in the actual software development land, anything you can think of. I think if I could make anything go away, I think it would be some, like making it just a non-question to have those base level setup things in place, you know, CICD, linting, your testing environments, like that kind of stuff. Just, you know, one thing that, for example, Go does really well is it, it has very strongly opinionated ways to do certain things, but it gives you a lot by doing that. I think extending that just to things, like I said, like if CICD was just a given, it's just there, you don't have to actually fight it. I think that'd be awesome and save so many people so much time. Out of the box, you just get it. Yeah. Very good. I had uh, Harry on. He was talking about uh, the 
product to design to development process, making the handoff between all three of them uh, much more smooth. And I thought that was a, a clever answer. It wasn't necessarily a clever answer as well. Um, not directly within software, but uh, he took the the level of abstraction uh, down a layer or up a layer to basically say, well, this is where I think the problems are the most. So yeah, speaking of, I can snap my fingers somehow to basically make it where between customer and dev making requirements always clear. <laughs> yeah, good, good luck. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm watching a video yesterday on GitHub Copilot and it was solving interview questions that any you know mid-range engineer would get even some pretty difficult ones and it was able to see the requirements on the question and answer the algorithm for the person who was taking the test and with flying colors by the way like easy uh -huh. problems medium um all the way through and it it it, it took him probably a second to copy and paste the question into his editor. And then it took GitHub Copilot about a second or two to actually have the solution. And there, I will say, so he was using Python and some of the syntax would be something that if you ever worked in a system and you came upon that code, you would have absolutely no idea what it was doing. You'd have to have okay. a really good function name and just abstract the code behind the scenes. But nevertheless, it passed all of the tests every single time for every single problem. What are your thoughts on these things like GitHub Copilot, GPT-3, um, like the natural language processing and uh, the, the potential for our doomsday as software developers, as we know it, where robots are writing our code for us? You know, earlier we mentioned the idea of like WordPress developers, the ones who kind of have their niche doing marketing sites and they're happy with it. I think jobs like that maybe are at risk. I think some of your basic CRUD applications might be at risk. But, you know, as we just mentioned, even getting requirements right the first time is already hard enough. And so I think some problems are definitely going to be able to be solved very easily by this. But there's still an entire class of problems that I think are hard to express in a way that Copilot will be actually be able to understand and implement. Um, I think there's also the whole factor of like, you know, when you think you do understand them well enough, and then actually getting back in that, that the rest of that process of like of testing, deploying, of it, confirming with the customer still is a place where humans will need to be in a meeting. And that's all without even talk, talking about the potential license implications and questions about, you know, if GPL was part of the training process for Copilot, what does that mean for the code it produces? If mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's bidding out a line that is, you know, directly from GPL, what does that mean? I think there's an entire world of legality there that's going to be Interesting to see the fallout from, honestly, over the next few years. Um, I wish it would be faster than timeline than that, but I've seen enough in the legal side of things to know that it's going to be a few years. Yeah, yeah. But that said, I mean, there's a lot of problems that I think it can help you with, and those will be really interesting to see it do. Yeah, I agree. Um, there is certainly a, a set of problems, like you mentioned, that are ripe for like doing the CRUD operations and whatnot that are ripe for being replaced by something like that. But I think software is inherently a very people-driven thing, enterprise, mm -hmm. and people are messy. And getting 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 exactly. things right is not easy. Right, and requirements change constantly. And um, I mean, and that I think is another interesting thing. Is like, okay, give me a piece of code that was done correctly, requirements were gathered correctly, get Copilot wrote it correctly. 
awesome. Now it's deployed. Now a feature a change comes in. Mm-hmm. How is it going to handle that? Maybe they already have a path for that. Maybe they don't. I have loves to see whether it can change code yet or whether they're working on that yet. Right. Refactor a current system given a new feature right. request. Yeah. And I think that exactly is the other part of it is like, again, for a certain class, it's going to be great. Quick certain class of problems, it's going to be great. When you get to these larger, more complex problems, it becomes more questionable. And then it then opens up the entire world of, say, we do get to the point where the legalities are cleared up for larger companies to be able to consider it. If I have it generate my simple problems so I can focus on the complex ones, what's it going to be like interoperating between those two systems? Yep. Corner cases, observability, um, debugging, again, modification. Yeah, I think I think we're safe for ways off for being that point. Yeah, we're safe. I think I think we're safe for another couple of years. But thanks and so hey, much for coming case, on, Jim. We just start working on writing future versions of GitHub Copilot, and we still have a job. That's right. Become one of the people that maintains that system, right? There you go. <laughs> Put all your chips in that. Awesome. Well, Jim, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, I'm looking forward to, to uh, speaking with you soon. And and thanks for uh, all the all the good context on everything you've been up to and the, the path ahead for a lot of devs here. Absolutely. It was great. Take care, man. You too.